Uh, Brother Minson's going to be teaching to us in our, our Bible class this night. So would you welcome Brother Minson tonight with a hearty amen. Amen. It's old school. of the Lord tonight? Are we supposed to have that on a Wednesday night? Absolutely. I thank God for the presence of the Lord that's here tonight. Um, I've got a little something that I think goes along with that, but uh, it's not, it's elementary, but yet I think it's needed some time to remind us of what God thinks about us and just how he looks upon us, and we need to remember those things. You may be seated. My title tonight is very simple. If you want to put that first screen up. It's a question. I have several questions to ask you tonight. And this is not real. It's kind of a question, but God knows my name with a question mark. Now, sometimes in this world, you get all the hustle bustle in the world and the devil gets after you. You have all the things that can come against you. And you sometimes wonder and I know the spirit is going to speak tonight to somebody's heart because you get all bogged down and you get to hearing all the voices and the voices of negativity, the voices of Satan, the voices of everything would try to keep you from serving God or coming to the house of God. And one of the voices can be, even though you know, everybody here I think is a believer as far as I know and has been for quite some time, but you're not, you are not uh, immune to hearing those same old voices and the same old arguments the devil's been making for thousands of years. Successfully, if I don't, you know, if I, unfortunately, I mean, I have to say that he's been successful, but he's not going to be successful against you. He's not going to be successful against me by, in Jesus' name, through the power of Christ. And that's not going to happen. But have you ever this thought, does God even know my name? Does he even know what's going on with me right now? You're going through things, uh, you know, all types of things, and you can, each one of you could name unique individual things that you've been going through. I could name dozens, of course, you could too. And sometimes you have to battle those things. Does God know my situation? Does he see what's going on here? Does he even know my name? And that, uh, the Spirit, you know, I believe the Spirit spoke to me to put that title up there and to ask that question, even though it's very elementary. We know the answer to it already, of course, but that's the lies of the devil that come out, comes out. And um, I just want to go through a couple things. First, uh, we'll go to the key verse. Got the little baby up there to make things a little lighter. Jeremiah 1.5. This is not a scripture you're not unfamiliar with. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee to a prophet unto the nations. This is to the prophet Jeremiah, of course, but this scripture is for you also. Do you believe that God knew you before you were even formed or born and he had a plan for you? Now, that's not, we're not talking about predestination that you have no choice. We're not talking about that. God knows already the beginning from the end. And he saw your heart and how you would respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep that frame of mind when you're thinking about those type of things. So God knew the choices that you were going to make 
and he had a, has a plan for your life, and how many have perfectly aligned with his plan? I'm going to have to put my hand down because we get side rail. And I think I've made different decisions that I should have made differently and things would have went this way or that way, spiritually or whatever. You've all made those same decision, decisions, but thank God, God is a master chess player and he has ten or 20,000 moves that when you move here, he meant for you to go there. You move here, he's got a whole backup plan for that situation. Don't you feel comforted when you're in that kind of hands? I do, because I need somebody a lot smarter than me to operate things ahead of me, behind me, to the right of me, to the left of me. And I always pray, I prayed most of my life, Lord, go ahead of me in this situation and start working on people, working on minds, working on situations, working on every facet of this thing before I ever get there. Because you've got it figured out way better than I do. And you can see the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning, all those angles, and he is a master chess player. That's, that's a phrase I always like using. If you don't play chess, that's okay. Go to checkers if you have to. Whatever your favorite game is, go to that because he can beat you. Forward, backwards, sideways, every other way. Now, if you want to go to the next scripture, just to kind of give you perspective on things. Uh, next slide, sorry. Um, on to the, yeah, right there. Now, I just want to give you a little perspective. The current world population is 7,997,030,000. Okay, that's going to change even as I'm speaking. Pluses and minuses with that. Current U.S. population, 335 million, 4 billion, 400 million. I, I don't, yeah, 335 million, 400,876. Okay, now, according to the best calculations that they can come up with, how many people have lived in Earth's history. They'd say 117 billion. Okay, now this is from, of course, they're going to go from different factors. We know we're going from Adam and Eve. But this approximation is 117 billion people have lived on this Earth before you got here. How many languages are there today? 7,117 languages. You want to talk about a linguist. God is the master linguist. How can he hear all of those people in every language praying, talking to him, seeing everything they're doing, and being able to respond back to them in the same language? When I say that, I have almost fear in my heart when the, uh, dealing with that kind of God and that kind of power. That God created this universe, and this cosmos, when you look out there, is so vast and it almost is never ending. They have never seen the end of the cosmos looking through the most powerful of telescopes. He created all of that and hung all of the planets and, and the quasars and all the, the, you know, we're on one galaxy. There's thousands, if not millions of galaxies out there. And within this galaxy, we're in one solar system. And in the solar system, we're one planet. And within that one planet, you're in the United States. And within the United States, you're in, uh, uh, West, uh, you're in uh, Heron. And within Heron, you're in Monroe, West Monroe. And now you're in one, sitting there in one seat. You're one person. You see what I'm getting at? The vastness of God? If he can do all of that, he's got everything under control. And how many believe 
that he has that all, he created everything, and he's got it all under control. With your mouth, confession is made into salvation. So you say amen to that because it is true. By the time Adam and Eve were 130 years old, there could have easily been 10,000 people on earth. Okay, so you see how quickly populations can grow. Now, these are their sons and daughters. And yes, at the, in the beginning, that's what was intermarrying and creating the human race. Because, and if you, you know, now that doesn't work. Of course, we didn't, you don't want anything to do with that. But, you know, at that time, genetics were pure. There was no DNA corruption, and there was not problems with that. But by the time Adam and Eve were 130 years old, and by the way, Adam lived over 900 years old, because this was before the flood. The antediluvian world was a way different world than we live in. It didn't have the diseases. It didn't have all the environmental factors that would age people and destroy people like we get our bodies. Are by, if you make it to 100, you don't look that great usually. I've seen a few don't look terrible, you know. But uh, my grandmother lived to be 101. And my last uncle, he just died. He was well into his 90s. So I have longevity genes there. I hope that some of them hooked into me. Some of the physical problems I had, uh, I hope I rebuke them in Jesus' name. You know, we all want long life, you know, uh, and a good life, you know. But this could have happened by the time Adam and Eve, 130 years old. Okay, they could have had 10,000 people. So the answer to that question, God knows my name, is the short answer is yes. He does know your name, and he knows it quite well. He knows it very well. He knows your first, last and every other name in between, the nicknames and everything else. He knows it. So we don't have to fear about that. Now, we know we've read the scripture, Jeremiah 1 and 5. Am I loud enough about this distance? Because I know I can get too loud. Uh, now, God says, Jesus said in Acts 10 and 34, God is not a respecter of persons. So if he knows my name and he's taking care of me, that means he's going to do the same for you. I'm no better than you are. And when God's done something special for me, for you, you're no better than me. I'm expecting him to take care of me. And we need to, we need to remember this tonight because this, the devil, he will play on your mind on these kind of things. Well, he does it for them. But does he know me? Will he do it for me? Absolutely he will do. He will deliver you. He saved your soul, didn't he? He filled you with the Holy Ghost, didn't he? He's answered your prayers continually, but he doesn't say yes all the time. And I don't like that. Because I want him to say yes when I'm praying for something. Every time. And then, you know what? If that happened, I'd be in a bigger mess than I do get myself into. And so would you. So not every prayer is yes, but he answers every one of your prayers. Every one of them. It just may sometimes be no. Okay, with all the people in the world, question number two, how, how, how could he possibly know me? Well, Luke 15.4 tells us the story of the good shepherd. You know Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd. And he used that example because of the cultural period and very well, you know, the people at the time were... You know, they took care of animals, they were agrarian, they grew things. And he, Jesus comes and meets you where, you're at, where you are. He's not going to give you a complicated uh, 
explanation or any type of communication that you can't understand. Now, it may be you are highly intelligent, and he can give you those highly intelligent answers, so that's not a problem either. But whatever, wherever you're at, as far as any type of communication, that's where he come and meets. He comes and meets you there. So he came and talked to these people, and he was telling them, I'm the good shepherd. And you know what I, uh, you know, when he, at the end he tells that, but he tells the story, the parable of the, the lost sheep. So the one sheep wanders off, which happens very often when, you know, you're a sheep herder, and the good shepherd, he left that, all those 99, and he went out and got that one lost sheep, and he rejoiced when he did that. Now, the same way with you. Jesus went all the way to the cross for us all, right? For the whole world is what the Bible says. But not everybody will take advantage of that benefit. And it's a benefit that is beyond comprehension. But Jesus, he loves you so much, and he cares about what situation you're in now, and you will be in, that he would have went through the cross just for you. Do you have a problem, kind of a hard time understanding that? Sometimes I do. Why would he, just for me? I mean, I can understand it corporately for all of us, but could he just do that for me? Does he love me? Do you understand that kind of love? Because sometimes it's hard to understand, isn't it? And you have to ask, I have to ask, God help me to understand the depth of that. I know it mentally. I affirm it by faith. I agree with it, and I have no doubts about it. But still, that's a hard concept to understand that Jesus knows you individually. This is a corporate church. We're worshiping God corporately here. The Spirit was, is moving. It has moved in the song service. I felt the Spirit moving. You did too. And he's ministering. But he individually is looking into your life when the Spirit's ministering. He's looking right at you. Every one of you, he's looking at me. And how can God possibly do that? But he can. He knows what you are thinking. He knows if you're into the service or if you're thinking about what you're going to do after service or if you're, you're still left over from thoughts of the day, from work, from uh, different things that went on, or if you're mad, if you're glad, if you're just tired. Wednesday nights you deal with a just tired thing a lot, don't you? But he knows that just everything about you, every one of us, individually, all at once, all the time. That's the kind of God you're serving. And it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. In Matthew 10, 29, Jesus says that there is not one sparrow, which is the most common bird you see around, then over there and here, you see them all over the place, there's not one sparrow that falls to the ground and dies without him knowing about it, without the Father knowing about it. Now, wait a minute. We just stepped this whole thing up a little bit. Yes, he knows you and me, but you are talking about billions of birds flying around, and they die by the tens of thousands sometimes, you know, all over the place. And you're saying that God, this is what Matthew 10.29 says, that not one falls to the ground without the Father knowing about it. You want to talk about mathematical computations, about genius trigonometry and every other ometry with math that you could get in there. That's amazing. But it's true because God cannot lie. And Jesus said this, and Jesus is God. 
in the flesh, manifested. So it's true. That's the kind of God you're dealing with. Matthew 10.30, Jesus says, here, we're going to step it up a little bit more maybe, and maybe not so much, that the very hairs of your head are numbered. Now, we all go with the ball jokes and all those things about that. You know, well, there ain't much account up there. Well, let's just be realistic about, you know, there's a lot of hair on your head all across this world. We know we could just, we can't even tell how many there is. But do you, he says right here that they're numbered. The hairs on your head are numbered. Every time you comb it, you're losing some hair. You take the showers and the things and... The women are doing all these things with their hair, you know. Look at my hair. It, it took me 30 seconds to fix my hair, and I like that. <laughs> this is like a 30-second hairdo. In the type of work and stuff I do, you don't need much hair. But anyway, uh, but God knows if one of these little short hairs fall off. And he knows if, uh, and mine's mostly gray now, you know, I used to tell the barber, just cut the, all the gray out, then... That would mean I'd be bald-headed by the time this is over with. So you, now I just got my own hair, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm any good at it. I'm just saying I do it. So God knows that when a, one single hair falls out of your head. Why am I going over this? I'm just trying to give you a concept of what we're dealing with, what kind of God you're serving, and what, how shameful, how horrible, well, how tragic it is when people trade cheap imitations of worship for and make other things their gods when we have the real God that has all this power. Boy, we sell out so cheaply, don't we, when we get veered off? That's cheap. Is You can make anything a God. Things that are just fine. You can make sports a God. There's nothing wrong with sports. You can make fishing a God that you just... You just fish all the time or, or play golf or whatever you want to throw in there. Anything can be a God because it's you're, if you're putting it above and it's more important to you above serving the Lord, I'm not saying you can't do none of those things because you can as long as it's in perspective. And when that becomes more important to you and you are so focused on that and you are so obsessed with that that it affects your spiritual life, then the idol arises and how cheap an idol that is. And the Israelites were always fighting about idol worship, weren't they? They're about the nations surrounding them. What I can't figure out is when they served Melech and they offered their children up for burnt sacrifices. Melech required you to give your firstborn child to the fires of Melech. And you had to listen to that screaming infant being thrown in by their false high priest into a burning fire to serve their God. Now, that God or our God? That's why God, he ultimately destroyed Israel. After many warnings, he destroyed them and allowed their enemies to destroy them because that is so the horror of that. Jeremiah 1.5 that we read is used for you know abortion, about killing children and abortion, and it's very much applicable to that. Ever since Roe versus Wade, from, and it's been overturned, I know, but that, how many children have died in the womb? That what could they have been? At sixty million at least, and and that's that might be conservative. Who knows? Sixty million at least, and that's just I think in our country, right? Now you got to go worldwide with that number. So the gods of Malek, they're still burning, they're still here, 
It's just taking a different form. Jesus doesn't require that. He wants your heart. And He's not going to cut it out with a sharp knife. He's going to comfort your heart. He's going to heal your heart. He knows your infirmities. That's why God came in the flesh so He can talk to you individually. You sit down and you talk to Him like a friend. like He's God, respectfully, of course, but you can talk to Him and He's got an ear for what you're saying. And sometimes, even when you're angry, you can say angry words to Him and He'll still listen to you. And He'll let you finish, you know. But He will tell you an answer. That's the kind of God that we've got. So you better believe that he knows you, he knows your name, and knows right where you're at. Now Jesus took out time and traveled great distances to touch people. Now his disciples were a diverse bunch of guys. When he went and picked those, he, of course, picked the fishermen. We know the fishermen. Very common trade for the area. It wasn't the biggest, not rich men, by no means. They were getting by like a lot of us do, just living week to week, trying to get by, right? He picked the common man of the time. He didn't go to the Wall Street of the time, but he did not lay, leave them out either because he picked Matthew, a tax collector. <clears throat> he wanted representation from every member of society. In this church, there's all kinds of representation, and every one of you have unique skills and unique backgrounds that are unique to you and are unique to the kingdom of God. What you are sitting here tonight, you are unique and you are extremely important to the kingdom of God. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. God bless all these young people. I love seeing what they're doing around here. They're the future of the church and they're doing wonderful things. And I just love seeing what they're doing, and it's very encouraging. And I'm thankful for everybody that's working with those young people. I've been a youth leader in the past. I know how it is, and it's not easy. It's a lot of work. You spend a lot of your own money, time, and everything else in between. And a lot of times it's not seen, or you sometimes feel it isn't appreciated. So I thank God uh, that for here, the, the work that's going on with the youth. Okay, but mostly in this room, there's not youth, are there? You were young once. I was young once, you know, very young. And it doesn't seem that long ago. And I'm 60 years old now. What happened? I remember the misery, you know, getting here. But there's been good times and all that too. But um, we're not a young bunch here. But by no means is God done with you. You are specially anointed and picked and chosen to go into this community and every community where, you know, I live over by Christopher. A lot of you live around here, a lot of you live everywhere, every which way. But wherever you're at and the job situations or whether you're retired or wherever, you are uniquely selected because, because God knows your name. He knows you. And he has a mission for you. He's not done. I don't care what kind of physical condition you're in. As long as you've got breath in your body, he's not done with you. And he does not retire his soldiers. That doesn't mean that he's going to run you around like you did when you were in your 20s and 30s. You know you can't do that stuff anymore except by the miracle working power of Christ. 
You may get a burst here, so I often do a little something, you know. But he's going to use you in exactly the shape and condition you're in to do his work out there. And he knows exactly how to work with you and how to use you in the community. You better believe he does. They're also, when the disciples, there were zealots. Now, does anybody know what a zealot was? Now, you Bible teachers, I expect you to know that, what a zealot was. I won't call on anybody. But a zealot, are you raising your hand, Brother Zelke? <laughs> yeah, well, in those times, a zealot, a Jewish zealot, was a very patriotic, very rampant, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, someone that's hyper-patriotic, and they wanted to kill the Romans and drive them out of the land. A zealot, uh, they had these knives called sicarii, uh, I believe the right pronunciation is, and it's like, like a special curved knives, and they wanted to have them in every Roman's back that they could get near. And zealots were very, they were violent people, and they were very dangerous people. And you know what? Jesus picked one of them as one of his disciples. You want to know how much work that Jesus probably had to do with him to drop his knife down? And if you ever watch the, the series The Chosen, it kind of it cho shows a lot of how he picked his disciples and does a really good job at it. And they show you know the zealot in there and whatnot. But Jesus picks not the easy people. He picks the hard people a lot of times. So if you're kind of a hard person to deal with, yeah, great. Jesus got the solution for you. I won't ask your wife or husband or anything. If that's, you know, my wife would probably say something about me, you know, so all that. But uh, Jesus got the solution for you. He can, he's worked me over a lot because he ha he's had to straighten me up some uh, from when I first got into the church. And um, I, just some of the stuff. I was a zealot when I got into the church for the, but I was, I did. Stuff I, I said stuff to people that I never should have said that was encouraged back then, but it was foolish. So, yeah, Jesus had to work me over a lot, and I'm glad he did. And a, a prophecy was given over my wife and myself and uh, when we was at another church up in Mount Vernon and uh, prophesied over us. And one of the things that uh, was prophesied, it was Jesus saying to me, I have, you have many things to learn. And one of, that was one of the statements. I have many things to teach you. And you know what? He was right. And he's not done. I'm not done. I still got many things to learn. And uh, he can put you in your place and get you straightened up if you're a little bit hard-headed. Jesus went out of great... In John 4, and uh, chapter 4, 6 through 42, the whole story about the Samaritan woman at the well. We've all heard about the Samaritan woman at the well. That is such a great story. I love the story because there are several things why I love that story. Why would a Samaritan woman go to draw water at noon? That's the hottest part of the day. Do you know when Samaritan women, or do you know where any of the women, and the women were assigned to draw the water, and that wasn't no little easy job, and they, they carried it on their heads, and you know I don't know how their necks took that kind of thing. But uh, when did the women usually go to get water? Morning and the evening, right? In the cool of the day. If they run out, they're going to go in the evening too. Morning was it. Why is a Samaritan woman going at noon? 
Yep. She didn't get along with a lot of people. They judged her, and, and she was not she was not a saint, you know. And uh, she'd been married five times and was living with a guy at the time. Jesus told her that. And so she, to avoid all the, yuck, 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 you know, all the confrontations, she went at noon. And who'd she run into, though? Because Jesus came there, and I believe he came there just for her. That's how Jesus works. He walked, I don't know how many miles, and his disciples, and his disciples, you know, said, well, are you hungry? And let's go get some food. And he said, I'll sit here at the well while you go do that. And he sat there, and guess who walked up to the well? I bet he was surprised, right? No. He knew who was coming at the well at noon. And we know the story, how he told the, you know, told her all the things she did and all that. And, and what I like about that story most, and what I find most beautiful about that story, is Jesus was not one to go around and say, I'm the Messiah. Hey, I'm the Messiah. He kind of kept it down, didn't he? He, kinda, he told people to suppress it sometimes. Do you know what he told her? He said to her, I that speak to thee am he. I am the Messiah. She is one of the only ones that he just flat out and said, I'm the Messiah. That's the kind of heart she had to receive it. He saw her heart. He sees our hearts. And he will say surprising things to you. When you, he knows your heart can receive those things. And he said to her plainly, no parables, no tricky phrases, or no, you know, go study your, this Torah for a while. He just said, I, the one, I am the one, the, the one that's speaking to thee, am he. I am the Messiah. Plainly told her. That's one of the wonder, most wonderful things I like about that story, is Jesus is flat out said, I'm the Messiah to her. Because he didn't do that with everybody. Luke 19, 1 through 10, Zacchaeus. Another beautiful story. Now here you've got a tax collector. There's a very short man. So he probably got pushed around a lot because they didn't like tax collectors anyway. And here comes Jesus to Jericho to visit. And the spirit had been working on Zacchaeus's heart prior to that because he knew he had done wrong. He had treated people wrong and he knew he something needed to change. This wasn't some surprise encounter. Jesus was coming to Jericho for one person at that time. Others were touched, of course. Other Samaritans were touched with the, you know, it, it always happens like that. When Jesus does a blessing, it bubbles over. It's not a little bitty, tiny blessing. When he pours out a blessing on somebody, it bubbles over and there's people that residual effects. There's uh, concentric circles like you throw a, a pebble in a pond. It goes out. The blessing overflows. So, Zacchaeus, he sees Jesus coming. He says, I've got to see him. I've got to see him. Well, people are thronged around him. And he said, i got to see Jesus. They probably said, get out of my way, little man. You know, get over there. And he knew what he had to do. He thought, and he ran ahead and got up on that sycamore tree. And he said, at least I'm going to see him from above. Well, boy, did he get the shock of his life. Because Jesus walked right under that tree. And he walked underneath that tree. And he stopped. And Zacchaeus is saying, I wonder why he's stopping for it. And then he looked up. And Zacchaeus is looking down, and those piercing eyes of Jesus was looking right at him. But the surprise didn't stop there. Jesus was not told Zacchaeus' name, but we're talking about God in the flesh now, aren't we? He looked up, their eyes met, and he said, Zacchaeus, 
He called him by name. You bet Jesus knows your name. I'm going to keep saying it. He called him by name. Zacchaeus, come down quickly. i got to have dinner at your house today. Now that sounds presumptuous, doesn't it? Well, Jesus, you're inviting yourself over to dinner? I mean, you know. He knew Zacchaeus's heart. That's what he wanted more than anything is to have him over to tell him the way of salvation, to show him what he needed to do to become righteous because he knew he was unrighteous. Jesus knows exactly what you need at the time you need it. Well, not everybody was happy about that because what... Why is he eating with him for? The most evil person of the whole town. He goes and eats with him, with the rich men. Jesus was criticized with that, and he, he told the people what it was about, about salvation coming there. And salvation really did come to Zacchaeus, because you know what? He was going to give up some money. When you get with uh, someone that's holding on to money, and they let loose of their money, you know God's moved in. Man, God's moved in there. That's with any of us. We, we work hard to earn that money. We've got that money. And when God lets you loosen up on some of that money and let it loose, you know that the Spirit of God, not nobody coercing you, not nobody shaming you, not nobody doing anything, especially when nobody else knows about it and you let loose some money for the kingdom of God or to restore things that were wrong or whatever, God's got a hold of you. He's really got a hold of you when he got a hold of that wallet. So... That is something that you knew Zacchaeus. He says, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I've uh, stolen anything or basically cheated anything, I'll return them four or five whole. And um, you know that salvation, Jesus said, salvation has come to this household because he's also a son of Abraham. You are, you are also sons and daughters of Abraham because we will come from the east, the west, the north, the south, and all gather together and meet Abraham and talk with him. That's what the Bible says in the kingdom that is to come. And uh, in John 5, 1 through 16, the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus made a special trip to the pool of Bethesda. Now, we see these and we read these stories. It's very sterile when we read stories out from the scripture until you, you know, get yourself down into that story. Get your sandals on. Get those old dusty sandals on and get those robes on and get those that mindset on and go down into that dirty old crowd and get yourself among them. You go to the pool of Bethesda, you're not going to smell a very nice place because what is full of sick people that can't take care of themselves and there's no, there's no state aid, there's no nothing to take care of anybody. You're on your own. If you don't have a relative to take care of you, you're stuck. You'll die in the street eventually. There's all those sick people there with no backup system to take care of them, and they're waiting for a special event to happen. Now, this man that Jesus went to see had been in that condition for 38 years, laying around there, scratch, scratching around, scratch, begging and scratching for the existence, and somehow survived 38 years that way. He evidently was like paralyzed from waist down or something like that. So... He was there waiting. Now, what was he waiting for? The Bible says that every so often in a certain season, an angel would come down and go whack and just smack those waters and stir them all up and splash them all around. And when that happened, obviously you could see it out there, a commotion, 
everybody went crazy. They went crawling, rolling, whatever they had to do to dig themselves down toward that water because the first person that jumped in that water was what? They were healed. It was true. It did happen. And it happened at every certain season, whatever the season was. We don't know the, the frequency of it. But that man had been waiting 38 years, and Jesus met him, and Jesus already knew the answers. When Jesus asks you questions, he knows the answers already. Yes. He just wants to see what you're going to say. Yes. So you ever had people that asked you questions, and they already knew what the, you know, they already knew the story that you were going to tell them. Just see what you're going to say. But Jesus did it in a positive way. And Jesus said, you know, asked him about his condition. He said, well, sir, I can't, every time that water stirs out there, by the time I drag myself over there, somebody else has got down behind me. Because he says, I have no man to help lift me up and then literally throw me in there. You know, I can imagine people that are waiting to help people and they see that water stirring and their loved one's sitting there. They grab them underneath the arms and they just literally propel them into that water trying to make them be first. Now, they may get hurt in the process, but... You know, if they're the first one, it, they'll be healed. They'll be fine. It's okay. Broken arm as you're hitting and rolling in, healed as you're coming back out. It's okay. The angel's got it under control then. So I can imagine that all happening. So put yourself into the situation there. It's not, it doesn't smell good. A lot of people, they're all sick. Everybody's moaning and groaning around. Jesus waded through that wave of humanity. Why didn't he heal all of them? I can't have all those answers, but I know it has to do with the heart. He saw him almost like a glowing, strobing light. And he knew he needed to go to there. He needed to go to him. And he needed, and he knew he had the faith. And so he said, rise up, take up your bed and walk. Well, it so happened to be the Sabbath day. So that guy got in trouble later because the religious leaders, even though there was a miracle done, they couldn't accept that. You ever been around anybody that just likes throwing water on there, just a cold water on a on a fire, a wonderful testimony or wonderful thing that happened in the church or whatever, and you're trying to be excited, and then they got something negative to say? Yeah, does that ever happen? It never happens here, I know, but you know, if it ever happens, it's not that great, is it? The Pharisees were like that, and they chewed him all up for carrying his bed. Who told you to do that? Well, that, I don't know his name, but he healed me, and he told me to pick up my bed. Finally found out it was Jesus, and then, oh, they were all after Jesus for doing that. Not a word said that you healed a man that was suffering for 38 years. They were just worried about him carrying that little bedroll on the Sabbath. That's all as far as a religious mind could go. Hopefully we're all better than that. Now here's the next thing. Am I holy enough or good enough to warrant God's attention? I'm going to give you a real quick answer. No. Neither am I. You're not good enough. You're not holy enough. Now, that's the short answer. But we got better answer than that here in a minute. Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan, who's, and do you know what the word, the name Satan means? It literally means what? Accuser. Because Satan stands before the throne of God and accuses the saints day and night. Look at what they did, how they failed you. You call them saints? Look at what they said, what they did, where they went. You know, how they didn't follow your the, the, the guiding of the Spirit. How they didn't do this and that. Satan's constantly doing that for everyone. How he's doing it for everybody at once, I don't know. Maybe demons are helping, I don't know but I don't know all the mechanics of it, but the Bible says it happened, so that means it is happening. 
Romans 3.10 tells us, there is none righteous, no, not one. We already knew that, didn't we? We've read it before. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've known that too, because we had to know that in order to understand that we were a sinner, to understand that we need to come to an altar of repentance, to understand after that, that when we get the blood applied to our life, we need to go to the waters of baptism that we so beautifully saw last Sunday, another one go under, which is a wonderful, beautiful thing, marvelous, and the Sundays before that when the other ones went, marvelous, marvelous happenings. And this, we also understand that when you do that, you're going to seek for and receive the Holy Ghost. We understand all that. But sometimes we have to be reminded, not that we're no good, because we already know we came from that. But we have to understand that we have an accuser always working against us. And if you're around someone that's constantly accusing and picking and just trying to run down, what spirit is that? I don't think I need to answer that, did I? Because if it comes from the spirit of the accuser, if you're around someone that's encouraging and lifting up and trying to keep you moving forward and trying to lift you up, what spirit is that? And there's a lot of those. I call it the spirit of Barnabas. I always like using it I, and tell God, God help me have the spirit of Barnabas because Barnabas made helped make Paul who he was when nobody would help him. The Apostle Paul, when Paul was still Saul, that he had a Barnabas to help him. God, make me a Barnabas to help anybody I possibly can. In Jesus' name. I hope you pray that too. Now, Isaiah felt the crushing condemnation of the unworthiness of God when he was called to be a prophet. Woe is me, he said. I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell among a people of unclean lips. Because I, I, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But Isaiah was not left hopeless, was it? He had an angel came, and we know God used the symbolism and everything. The angel came and put a coal upon his lips, and he says, I've cleansed you. Jesus has came, came he died on the cross. He, stayed, he was in the grave three days. He rose again for our justification. And he is on the right hand of God. He's in heaven for our salvation. That's what he did for you. And we are not without hope. Isaiah was not left without hope. He was given purification by special acts of God. We are given purification by the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us cleanseth us from all sin. Romans 8.34, here's the good one. He is always, that Jesus is called the intercessor in Romans 8.34 because he's always countering Satan. When Satan's saying, Brother Manson, can you see what Manson down there, how he's messed up and not doing right or whatever? Jesus is saying, he's one of mine. Leave him alone. My blood covers him. He is mine. I know his name. Satan knows your name too. Sorry. He has demons assigned in this area that know specifically what to do to push your buttons. And if you don't think that's true, I'm sorry. You better start believing it. There are thousands of demons, if not millions. And a third of the angels fell. We know that. That means there's two angels every demon, so don't worry about that. 
You always got a two to one ratio on your side. But there are demons, they stand around and they watch you. And they know exactly what to do to press your buttons. Don't ever forget it, but you don't have to put up with that because the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, devil, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. Devil, I plead the blood covering of Jesus Christ over this whole household and this whole family of mine, over my children, my grandchildren. I rebuke your hand off of them in the name of Jesus Christ. They're not yours. Devil, Jesus, they're yours. You know their names. Pray for your family. Rebuke the devil. Use the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and the power of the Holy Ghost, and angels will come to your assistance. Two to every demon. So when you feel those old demons running around doing their thing, you've got power behind you. And we're going to have to wrap this up. Now, does God know your name? Yes, we know that. But you, do you know in Revelation 2.17, it says you will get... It's talking to one of the seven churches of Asia. That you will have a white stone handed to you with a new name on it that only you know. Brother Zoki, let me see that stone that you, Jesus gave me. I can't read this. This is gibberish. I can't read what that says. Oh, well, you can read it. Here, look at my stone. Brother Vincent, I can't see what that says. That's my new name. I said, well, I know what it says, and you know what your stone says. You're going to get a white stone with a new name on it. Now, there's theories of, you know, three different theories. Uh, well, there's probably more than that. But the, about what this means. Well, you know, during the, again, let's talk about what the, the customs were at the time. This was a Greek culture that was Roman, now Roman. And in Greece, when they were having a trial, jury members would have white and black stones. And if they... The defendant, they thought they were guilty, they'd put a black stone down. If they thought they were innocent, they'd put the white stone down. And they would count the stones, and they would be acquitted, or they would be prosecuted. Another one, we know that the Jewish high priest had 12 stones in their garb, the plate, the breastplate they wore, so that, and they had the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed upon them. And when they went in to minister, when he went in to minister in the Holy of Holies and into the, the tabernacle and then the temple later on, they had, he bore the 12 names of the, the children of Israel with him always. The names of the children of Israel were always before God's throne. That's another possible reference of what the stone is. But I like the third one best that, you know, the ancient Romans. They awarded white stones to victors into the games. You know, they had all the Olympic-type games that they did. The victors were given white stones. And that was part of their thing, you know, part of their award. And, and they got the, you know, we know where they got the little, uh, the little crown made out of, uh, what is that, laurel? Uh, made out of laurel. We know that, too. But that white stone, there was a special banquet that was given for them in their honor, for their victory and their talent and their abilities. And in order for them to get into that special banquet, they had to show the white stone. We're going to be going to the marriage supper of the Lamb one day. Are you going to have to show a white stone to get in? I don't know. You're going to be there. I'm going to be there in Jesus' name. You're going to be there in Jesus' name. But maybe you'll have to show a white stone just... With your new name, it's not for anything to say, 
hey, I'm not Earl Minson anymore, I'm this. Whatever that name will be. I'm, I'm interested in knowing what that is, you know. It's going to be unique for each one of you. And when you see your new name, you're going to be amazed. You're going to be thrilled. And you're going to just be so joyful because it's going to, I believe, embody everything how God thinks about you as an individual. That's what I believe it's going to be. And you'll be so happy because he will have put that special effort into giving you your new name. So if you go to the last slide there that I have, we'll go where we started. Does God know my name? Yes, he does. He does know your name. He knows where you're at. And he loves you with all his heart. And he wants to guide you. And he wants you to serve him. And he wants you to talk to him as a friend. Because he does have an ear, always. And just like Zacchaeus, sometimes you might even be surprised because when you look up to heaven, he's already looking down at you and your eyes are going to meet. You feel your heart, the presence of God in your heart and you feel the thrill of the power of the Holy Ghost and you're going to commune with a Savior that knows your name. God bless you.